2: Hmm.
3: Welcome to another episode of Lady of the Road. My name is Arden and coming to you from my bougie garage in Los Angeles, California, along with my co-host, Miss... Julie-Ann Robinson. And we are so excited to have our guest today. I think we admire this woman very much. And Julianne, would you like to tell our listeners who we are going to be chatting with today?
4: I will. I'm so excited. Betsy Beers, you are a force of nature. I'm sure a lot of people have (laughs) heard of you by now. Uh, We met about 15 years ago, I reckon, when you plucked me from obscurity in the UK and invited me to direct Grey's Anatomy, even before Grey's Anatomy was Grey's Anatomy. You're a powerhouse producer known for Scandal, Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, Private Practice, The Catch, Station 19, and now, of course, Bridgerton. And you've had your own evening of television on Thursday nights on ABC. Um, And all of this is with Shondaland. You are the land of Shondaland. Um, I would also say this is a little bit intimidating because I remember very clearly that you were one of the first people to use podcasts and social media. And this was your innovation to promote the programming. I remember you were in Jack Warner's office back in the day. And I I remember coming in one day and you were like, oh, I've just got to finish doing this podcast and then I could talk to you. So that adds an extra layer of anxiety into the conversation (laughs) that we're about to have. Um, I mean, this is all pretty well documented, but I, in this podcast, I'm interested in what the building blocks were that went into building this powerhouse producer that we see before us today, um, how you were positioned perfectly uh, when the meeting with Shonda took place to, with her, build the empire that is Shondaland. Um, because it's like that 10,000 hours thing. There's a, a lot of work goes into building and positioning a person so precisely that they're able to, you know, then take off. Um, so I'm super excited and well, thank you.
2: Well, first of all, uh, thank you for that incredibly flattering and intensely wonderful introduction. And um, I'm also just going to say to everybody, one of the joys of this entire experience has been when Julianne Robinson came into my life about 15 years ago, And knocked our socks off, Um, and in a typical Julianne Robinson fashion, was very uh, sort of humble about the entire thing, but came in as an incredibly qualified and um, celebrated director in England, and simply killed it. And then it started the long relationship with, with you, where not only have you directed on our shows, but we've developed and produced shows together, and you are a fabulous pilot director. So um, I'm honored to be here. And I'd also like to point out, I had nothing to do with social media. I hate tweeting. I'm terrible at (laughs) Instagramming. You don't want to see what I look like at home. But um, (laughs) we did do podcasts in the early days because it was one of the only ways I could figure out a way to contribute something to the social machine. So back in the olden days, we did did a podcast, Sean and I did a (laughs) podcast about Grey's Anatomy Partially because it was an easy way for people to get to hear Shonda's voice, so I asked her questions, and then it sort of morphed into this Shondaland revealed, which was once again my Luddite way in those days of contributing to social media. And now, look at y'all in your, <laughs> your podcast universe and your bougie garage there. My bougie I mean, garage. come on, Arden. Like, <laughs> Thank this, you. This is a, it's 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 a pleasure. So yeah, you just ask me, uh, ask me anything and I'll try to tell you and make it vaguely interesting.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm interested in something that's not very well documented. Um, So forgive me, Um, baby Betsy.
3: I'm interested. <laughs> it's going to be this uh, on Fridays on CBS this fall as Baby Betsy.
2: It is exactly, exactly the most obnoxious child on the block. Exactly.
4: Well, it's interesting because I've I I looked I did a little bit of digging as as much as I could and I found out that you went to two of the most competitive um, educational institutions in the world and so there must have been an um, an element of a drive there from from early on um, to to actually get into those institutions which were Milton Academy and Williams College mm-hmm. and and I was interested in even before that I I hope this is okay that I mention it you Go mentioned crazy. It in your Ma- Marie Claire kind of yeah, speech totally. you said that you had a volatile, unpredictable mother and a dead father for most of my
2: childhood. <laughs> Did I say I, that? Cause that's pretty accurate.
4: Yeah. And I wondered whether that, or there was, if, could you just talk about that?
2: Yeah. Um, I think, and I can certainly talk about the lead up to the experiences at Milton and at Williams. Um, yeah, so I grew up on Long Island. Uh, my dad was a theatrical agent. He actually was a talent agent, and he discovered a lot of talent in the 40s. He worked for William Morris in the old days. And he also cast um, live television for, for some of the folks who were listening in the olden days, in the very beginning of TV in the 50s and sort of mid to late 50s, and those are the 1950s guys uh as opposed to the 1850s let's (laughs) let's, let's not make me older than I actually am but he um was responsible for casting a lot of the live television theater that they used to do in those days and he discovered Grace Kelly he worked with Gene Kelly
5: wow he was
2: involved with you know John Frankenheimer and Ingrid Bergman and all these different people of that period and by the time I was born later um he unfortunately, all of the sort of TV mo- business had moved to the West Coast, and he you ref- could die died in the World of New Yorker, refused to leave and ended up with a I would say a more quiet career as he got older, and my mother was strangely a Latin and English teacher, so they were a bit of a an odd couple. Um, he did he died when I just turned ten, and my mother was a fierce smart. Um, highly passionate, definitely volatile, um, you know, with, with a lot on her plate, I think, but she also helped support us by teaching at the local elementary school, which was a really excellent private school on Long Island. So I was trained, um, in two things, really. I was trained in theater because the way I read, I learned how to read was on his lap with these books that actually described every play that opened on Broadway. And I learned how to read by identifying actors that he'd represented.
3: Oh my and God. then he'd
2: turn on the TV and I'd go, that's Burt Reynolds. Oh. And that was sort of how I learned stuff. But oh. then the flip side was my mother was highly literate, um, very book smart, uh, th- very, very protective. She hated bullies. She was, she, she, her heart was in the right place, but one of the huge priorities in our household was education, without a doubt. Mm. So on one hand, I had this very theatrical background where education was not a huge part of my father's background, but he was self-educated. And my mother, who was fiercely protective of our abilities to get access to the best education that we could get, because in her opinion, it was a huge portion of if you're well-educated, you have the ability to look at your options and understand what your choices are. So long with the way of saying, it was sorted in my DNA to care about school and love aspects of school. And it was certainly part of the community that I grew up in. And my, my elementary school experience, the expectation was that I would go off to boarding school and, you know, then off to college. So I'd like to take more credit for it. Um, but I think I was lucky in that I did love aspects of school, but then we always picked schools that had very strong drama programs and very strong arts programs. And part of the reason I did go to Milton Academy was because they had one of the stronger arts programs and it was, a, it was required at Milton as opposed to a lot of other schools of that, that ilk in that time. And then ended up going to Williams specifically for their theater program and the educational aspect, and honestly, truthfully, because they had this amazing year abroad program, and I knew I wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. So I was really excited about the opportunity to go to England, which I did for a year to study theater and English. Oh. So it was, um, it sort of, it, I don't think I was particularly imaginative about any of it, but it was definitely I'm very grateful that I had both experiences. I think and I'm very grateful that I could have both experiences. Um both the theater side and the academic side, which does sound a little schizophrenic, but it ends up sort of coalescing in the job that I have now. And one of the things I always say to people is what's great about whatever you do is somewhere along the line it'll end up being useful. So it's You know, a lot of people say I wasted my time or did this or the other thing. And I mean, all right. So my vague minor in medieval German history maybe (laughs) didn't come in all the time, (laughs) but there are aspects about it that I I do still use, at the very least, to impress people who think I'm stupid in meetings. So
3: you do sound like organically, perfectly. It's like perfectly trained just by naturally where you were to be fantastic at your job and to be aware that Hollywood was a career, that it was a viable career, and then to apply the education to it. I was telling Julianne before I came on, I also grew up in a volatile house and I also went to boarding school. I went to Middlesex. You went to Middlesex? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. And I have to say, and theater was not a priority there, but the uh, they, but they had a great physical space and the upshot of that was no one was interested in using it. So I would write plays. You know, everyone was playing lacrosse and stuff. And so I would just, they had this beautiful theater. And so I would just like write plays and stage them there. But I, I did really relate to... In Marie Claire article, your love of television and that that was a consistent pair, all of that. And then the fun of getting to leave and get out of that house at 14 was like such a gift
2: for me. Oh, It, it totally was. And I think for me, um, one of the things was when my father died, I mean, before that, when I was about five, I was like, I want to be an actor. I had two choices, princess or actor. I was like, (laughs) and I was, and my mother kept going like, princess is a rough choice. I'm just going to be honest. I'm not sure we can pull princess off, but in fairness to my mother too, I have to say that they were always really supportive despite the fact that she was always wrestling with her own, often wrestling with her own demons. I think she very sort of fiercely loving and really, really wanted to make sure that we all got to do what we really, really wanted to do. And I, the, the funny thing is, is I don't know if this is true for you too, but I, by the way, I'm just pointing at a screen like an idiot because it's like, all anybody <laughs> can do is hear my voice, but I'm pointing at a screen because by the way, your garage isn't bougie at all. It's really fabulous. Thank I mean, you.
3: <laughs> yeah, they, it's actually soundproof. This is fabric. I put soundproof Oh my prefix, God. So like you're so
2: advanced. You it's just insane. I,
3: I love design. I love, de- oh I love to God. make
2: things. Fabulous.
3: Thank you. Um, but I, I trained to be an
2: actor for years and- It's, you know, I feel like I was able to continue those studies and then move to New York and attempt to be an actor and realized I wasn't a very good actor and went into comedy where it was a lot more of a natural fit. But you you it's it is interesting how you end up, you know, all those years acting have given me a gigantic sympathy for actors and makes me basically love actors and the profession and was sort of my introduction into you know, what you're describing, which is you were actually able to find your space at school at Middlesex and use that area for your own purposes, which got you interested in writing. I think when I was doing comedy, I got really interested in the idea of producing because we didn't have any producers. We didn't know what that was, but I was sort of the person who was like organizing things and putting things together And trying to figure out ways to work things out. So I look back and I think, oh, yeah, I I kind of, despite my best intentions, gave myself the best training for what I ended up doing if that makes sense.
4: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that your mom was keen to make sure that you all did what you wanted to do in life. How many how many of you were there in the house?
2: There were 3 of us. Um but I was the youngest. I was definitely a big big oops baby. <laughs> um I, I I I I believe I was like a miracle child because I still don't quite understand how that happened, but um I have two older sisters and uh one of them you know one of them i it, it, the age was such that she left home at a particular point she went away to boarding school too so there was a large part of my childhood where both or a, a decent part where both other sisters were off at school and i was alone at home with my mom mm. um but weirdly my middle sister she ended up uh going into later in her you know she went to school and lived to london and I followed in her footsteps loving London and loving England but she ended up moving out to she started in New York working sort of in the business and then moving out to California and getting involved in um producing and ended up running uh you know mini series and movies at a particular point for you know one of the largest organizations in LA so she was she was in that business too wow um and yeah I think my mom was always I I don't think she had as many choices as we potentially did. So I I feel like she, she tried to really make sure that we felt like we had choices. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for her now because she was an incredibly, and I probably wrote about this, but she was an incredibly strong, incredibly forceful, uh, force of nature. And if you're a teacher in an elementary school and you're a woman and it's the 60s and early 70s, that is not popular. No. Oh, right. Um, In her, you know, she didn't have the charming, adorable social niceties of a lot of this incredibly kind of buttoned down community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she suffered a lot for that, you know, because she, I think she had higher ambitions and... I'm not sure she ever really got to tell them. I don't know if you, you all have parents like that too, but.
4: Yeah, I mean, my, my mom was really interesting. She was a civil rights activist and she was one of the first women to go to Africa as part of the Peace Corps. She was like the first wave of people. And so that's hence my weird, multinational upbringing journey. amazing. So I feel like she was maybe the first wave of people that actually was able to just say to her family, East Coast family, no, I'm going to do this, you know. That's
3: impressive.
2: That is impressive.
3: My mom definitely wore the little white gloves to work. She grew up in Douglas Long Island and went to Bayside High. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting. It was like, like Julianne's mom... I will say my mom always made me believe that I could do anything I wanted to do. My father was very sexist, and they married on a dare, and they stayed married oh for God. 50 years. <laughs> they <laughs> stayed married story. for 50 years. And uh, so he was very much against me, and she was very much like, no, go for it. You got it. Don't have a B plan. But I think—but and but for herself, you know, they moved to the small town, and it was basically you're a teacher— you're a real estate agent, so she she sold houses till the day she died. And uh, but but she always and she had, she didn't think she had a good you know we didn't grow up wealthy and Middlesex was expensive and she thought that high school was where people actually learn. And so she's like, she would take out like a third mortgage. And she said, I'd rather run out of money for college. Who cares about college? You can, your brain can learn in high school. I want to, I want you to be a smart, educated woman. And maybe you won't get a college degree because you might not be able to afford it. (laughs) But she doubled down on high school because she thought that's where, because she didn't think she was educated. So
2: incredibly, both interesting and radical. I mean, when you think about it and- Look, I totally identify with what you're saying because we were in this incredibly well-off, WASPy chunk of Long Island, yeah. which I I loathed growing yes. up, and we were the we were the poor kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was always that feeling of being less than anyway. Yes. And you know, I gotta say, thinking about it, if you go to a good enough high school or you have a good enough experience in high school, I don't know what your experience was like, but. I loved high school. I loved me boarding too. school. I loved I it. Like, I loved I would it. have freaking lived there for the rest of my life.
4: That's what I was going to, that was going to be my next question, actually. How did you, how how did you find boarding school?
3: Loved it. It's loved like going it. to college at 14 because it's co-ed. It's, it's so the best. Fun. It's so fun. <laughs> it's, I loved it.
2: And it was also for me. Um, for me, it was the first time. I mean, I went to an elementary school. My mother taught me.
3: Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was no. She That's taught rough. Latin.
2: It was not a pleasant experience. She wasn't a very happy person at that point. Mm-hmm. So not only was I sort of like the poor, awkward kid who wasn't incredibly popular anyway, I was the poor, awkward kid whose mom taught there. So everybody kind of knew that you were poor and awkward. And I felt incredibly like tied to that identity. And you go at a boarding school, it's like moving to California. Yeah. You know how California is like the Wild West still? And you go... I could change my name to Troufaz McMillan and nobody would be able to figure out, or they would care. They just go, Hey, Troufaz, I don't know who you were before, but (laughs) you're in California. Congratulations. And that was like what boarding school was like for me. Boarding school was like, wait a second, I can develop a personality here. And it was like, it was really, really liberating. And also it was such a freaking good education That to your mom's point, and I'm pointing at you now, nobody can see me, but I'm pointing aggressively (laughs) at the screen in an enthusiastic, compassionate way. I think the amazing thing was I really didn't like college. Me neither. Because I'd already done it.
3: Yes, we did it. I was ready to go. I was like, do I have, I, I already did it. Yeah. When, uh, wait, where did you go to college? I didn't go to a great college. I went to a I went to an OK college. I went to Colorado College where they have the block plan. It's one. Oh, yeah. 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 I because I felt like I'd already done I'd already done the East. I'd already done yes. small. And so I thought I just wanted I wanted to move to New York or L.A. But I was very young. I was 17. And my mom was like, you you know, Let's just, but I didn't spend much time there. I kept finding ways. I went to Chicago when I was 19 and did a year there. I did improv. Then I went to New York and worked at Conan. I was just, I was ready to go, but I didn't, I didn't think I was safe in the world. And again, my mom was the one who, she was working extra hours. She was the one who took on debt. Like she was the one, I think just because I was too young, she didn't think I'd be safe to go.
2: I get that. I mean, I get it, but it's, it's so funny. I wish I'd talked to you. I, I wish I could time travel to future, then back to past, because the I, I ended up going to Williams partially because it was in those days, which were Paleolithic for your listeners, because I'm 300 years old. It was, like, <laughs> it was like 1815. It was Bridgerton time. Yeah. But in those days, it was sort of like when you went to school, there were like three or four, or five or six schools everybody just told you you had to go to. Right? Yeah. And because I was in boarding school on the East Coast, Nobody thought to suggest. Oh, I don't know, like Northwestern, right, or Berkeley, yes, or uh, you know, st- someplace that was interesting and had a great theater department, but was bigger. And the places that I was choosing from were Princeton, Yale, Harvard, UPenn, Wesleyan. It was all kind of east coasty stuff, and I ended up going to Williams partially because I. I also sort of knew I had to be on the East Coast because my mom, There, I just felt like it was better given a lot of circumstances. And the minute I got there, I went, wait a second. This is like a bad version of boarding school. Yeah. Because you had all these kids who've never been let out of their houses before. And the first weekend, Julian, you were like standing in the middle of the quad with what I would say is a bunch of amateurs mm-hmm. <laughs> all throwing up in the corner and yes. trying to like bang each other. And you're yes. like- how did I go back in time to like, like I was more sophisticated as a sophomore at boarding school. This is stupidity. Mm -hmm. I've got a a couple
4: of questions coming out of that. One is, so you've described that you were being taught by your mother, but your father was this impresario. Was there a change in circumstance at a certain point?
2: That's, it's interesting. No, by the time I was born, he was not in a money earning position because being an agent at William Morris in the olden days, wasn't like being an agent William Morris. Now (laughs) you were an employee of the only agency in town. Yep. And basically you made a salary. Mm -hmm. And then at a particular point when his work all moved out of town, his job fell on hard times. Mm -hmm. So to your point and my mother who I can't remember when she's, I think she started teaching when I was little, um, is my memory, but And my, I would stay at home with my father who would babysit me as a tiny, tiny little kid. And my mother would go teach school. So we were never, we were never particularly well off regardless, Mm -hmm. but my mother really wanted to move to this fancy community on Long Island. My father would have been happy, I think years before just to stay in New York, but Mm -hmm. that was the difference between the two of them. Um, They didn't necessarily see eye to eye in a lot of ways on that, but So to answer your question, I always grew up with those circumstances. I was Mm -hmm. lucky because his family actually was well off. So in worst case scenarios and like when I was able to go to good schools because there was a way to potentially pay at least for education, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is sort of what we're talking about. But yeah, it was it's funny because we all think about you're a big dude in the business. He was an incredibly talented and smart and, um, talent friendly agent who his, his, exactly. His goal was never to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. His goal was to make sure the right person got the right part or that he would create an opportunity. He's an artist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And he's an artist and he's a self-educated artist. So I think a lot of it, too, had to do with um, at the same time he was doing all this. And he saw every play that opened on Broadway from 1930 to to the day he died, 1968, Mm -hmm. like literally every single play. He never missed an opening of a of a theatrical performance on Broadway. And it didn't matter if it was it lasted a day or not. He still saw it.
3: Did you go to any of them with him did he bring? you know
2: it's one of the saddest things for me is that I was super young when he died because my sisters did a lot Aww. and the other funny thing was <clears throat> my mother was less into theater um but she loved musicals and my father freaking hated musicals <laughs> like hated them <laughs> so he the joke was he would go to musical and he'd just fall asleep right. he loved uh Thornton Wilder he loved our town he loved a bunch mm-hmm. of different plays, but he also read voraciously and wrote a journal about all the stuff that he read. So I have more um, connection in a weird way as an adult with him now from some of those pieces of information that I found. And also when I first came out to Los Angeles, there were some folks alive that had met him and known him. Wow. And And so one of them was this director, John Frankenheimer, who a lot of people don't know about now, but was a very well-known of director in life television. And then he made a number of famous movies and was this kind of crusty, saucy dude who I I met in a meeting. He realized who I was. And we went out a bunch of times and he told me stories about my dad. Aww. And that was the some of the best kind of background information I got about what kind of guy he was and how he worked. And because I I had to kind of, piece some of it together and you know with my sister's stories and stuff
3: how old were you when he passed away
2: I just turned 10 oh so was I was young
3: he sounds magical I have to say he sounds he
2: was he was hysterical he was it was like having a little kid in the house though it was sort of like he he told toilet jokes that's great (laughs) Well, he at one point he taught me how to play shoot craps. Yeah, great. But he, but he called it seven come eleven. So <laughs> I think my mother wouldn't know what was going. on. <laughs> but it was it was like it was like having a kid in the house. It, you know, he was
3: the artful Dodger raised you. <laughs> it,
2: <laughs> well, the artful Dodger, and then the Latin teacher would come home. So it was <laughs> it was a little skitsy, and it's Julianne. I it. can, Julianne can testify to I have both in me. Good because. <laughs> The Latin teacher, sometimes I always wanted to do like a, a blog, which was like called Mean Latin Teacher, because the Latin teacher comes out. Sure.
4: <laughs> on that note, on that note, we will go to an ad break, guys. Hey, keep <laughs> ad, keeping the
3: train moving. Keep, Latin teachers keeping the train moving. <laughs> yep. and we will. We will
4: come back. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about when we come back about being a performer in New York City.
2: Oh, just (laughs) gird your loins, baby. (laughs) 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 Discover
0: BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more.
6: You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer, check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
4: We're back. Betsy, could you tell us about being sure a performer in New York City? Uh, so you're an actor and also you moved then you moved into comedy. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. What why What happened? Why didn't you uh, stick with that particular
2: route? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question. (laughs) That was, that was dripping with sarcasm. Um, So, 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 okay. So I trained like my, I, from the age of five on, I knew I was going to be an actor. I did summer stock. I acted locally. I was in every play in high school. Uh, The drama, Department at Williams decided I wasn't very talented. So (laughs) I didn't end up doing as much there. I did a lot when I went to England for the year abroad, but I I knew that's what I wanted to do. So can I
4: just say, where did you go in England? I'm fascinated.
2: Okay. So there was this program called the British and European Studies Group.
4: Uh And
2: I went for about a year and I studied at Rada and Central. And then I had a tutor from Cambridge Uh from, I think it was Churchill. And he was one of the heads of the English department. And so I did both, uh, theater training there. And then I ended up, um, you know, doing different literature courses and he was lovely. He took a shine to me in terms of like, we, I did a couple of courses with him and then he became a private tutor and I'd go up to Cambridge every week and we talk about DH Lawrence actually. <laughs> How's that for a- a big load of pretentious <laughs> hoo ha for people who don't know who Do H Lawrence is, but I was I was absolutely in heaven. And when I graduated from uh, Williams, I did the uh, prerequisite summer stock in New Jersey. Yes, <laughs> um, having already done some earlier in my college career, got to New York and started realizing that I just I was not a good serious actor. I mean. Nobody took me seriously.
3: Who was your like dream? Who is the prototype that you like? Who did you sort of look up to and want a career like? That's such a
2: good question. Um, Okay, so this is the problem. This should have told me something really early on. (laughs) So you mentioned the fact that like I loved I I love television. I grew up with TV very often. I didn't know when my bedtime was because things were relatively chaotic. So I would know when to go to bed depending on what was on TV. Right. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But so, like, my role models were like Mary Tyler Moore and Carol Burnett. So, yes. But why I thought I was going to be Judy Dench, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just, I thought that that's what being an actor was. And then I just would never get any good parts. Like, nobody wanted me. And plus, I wasn't, I wasn't Meryl, like, I wasn't classically beautiful. I was kind of funny looking. And very early on when I got to New York, uh, I discovered this. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was like somebody that I met discovered this improv troupe downtown. Robin Williams had been there briefly, like Bruce Willis trained there. They were a hot mess. I mean, it was like a hot mess and it was the early eighties in New York, but I found out really quickly that I was really good at thinking on my feet. And I was actually, and I'd done a certain amount of improv in high school and college, but I'd never actually really done formats before. And this particular group was very big on not doing set formats. Second City, Upright Citizens, a lot of them do sketches. We would always do new stuff and we'd always make it up, which means the shows were kind of sucky, but we learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discovered that I was actually pretty good at it. I was pretty good at coming up things really fast and that I did better when I didn't have prep time because I didn't overthink everything. And Julianne mm-hmm. can probably testify to the fact that I can, I can pull something apart way too much. Just to really irritate people around myself. So I, don't, I personally don't, <laughs> haven't found that to be true. But well, that's, that's I'll lovely. I'll take your to word to, for it. That's lovely for you to say. But I find it, I found it very liberating. And the other thing was that it's all, if you don't listen, you don't survive. So the key to surviving and doing improvisation, and then we ended up doing sketchcom meeting. I ended up um, breaking off from that group and we formed our own group. Uh, two men and a woman and I started a smaller group. Um, one of those people ended up being like kind of a partner there and then my best friend and then my future husband and then my ex-husband and now a uh, still a really, really close friend. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we've had a, you know, incredibly long relationship, but we, we ended up like building a lot of the shows ourselves and at a particular point, uh, relatively early on, I was waitressing to pay the bills. The gentleman uh, got me a job as a waitress, and I still think everyone to this day that I was a waitress because waitressing is the best training ever for everything in the world, <laughs>
4: yeah, ever. I cut my thumb off when I was waitressing. Oh, that's not—that's
2: not good. <laughs> the top
4: of my thumb. Yeah, I cut it off because well, I was opening a bottle of wine like oh. that. You know those push-down things. Oh. And it cut off and it was really embarrassing. I was at the table. There's blood everywhere.
2: Oh, oh. oh Julianne. Okay. So I actually <laughs> couldn't do that thing where you open wine well at mm-hmm. all. Oh. So at this one restaurant, I would go to and help out a friend, uh, which was a nicer restaurant than the restaurant I worked at. I would put the wine bottle between my legs and pull. Yeah, and they would pay extra for me to come over and open the bottle. because <laughs> they were like, "Okay, I want to see the lady put the bottle between her legs." This is like the getting best a show. Go. We're getting a show. So I had a, a minor career as a uh, as a commercial actor. I didn't book a whole ton, but what I booked was always wacky and crazy and funny. And I was like the wacky next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. My agent in New York and. My partner was writing and had written a bunch of really good spec scripts. So he had representation, and my New York agent said, You should go out to LA because you can be a wacky next door neighbor on the sitcom. So I was like, okay, and my oldest sister, who I mentioned before, to whom I was really close, had moved out here, was working in the business. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'll be close to my sister Libby. And, you know, Peter and I will move out here and it's gonna be great. And I got out and within about 10 seconds, it was really clear. Nobody wanted me as a freaking, wacky next door neighbor in a sitcom. Because in those days, wacky next door neighbors in sitcoms all look like Suzanne Somers. Right. And I looked like right. your real next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, I just honestly, I wasn't that good. I didn't audition well. And I found I started to. And I haven't really talked about this very much, but I started to get real anxiety attacks about Mm -hmm. auditioning. I didn't, I just wasn't very confident. There was something about it where I just didn't feel like I was always sort of second guessing myself and I was super self-conscious and I didn't like the camera. I liked live audiences, Mm -hmm. but something about the camera I found really difficult. And there came this point where in order to make money, I couldn't get a job waitressing because you guys in California in the late 80s, you couldn't get a job at a fine dining restaurant if you were a woman. They only hired dudes. Right. Mm -hmm. right? So a friend of a friend got me a job reading scripts for freelance. Like they just said here, write up coverage. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, basically big studios and networks, what they would do is they would Uh, have a bunch of books that would come in and a bunch of scripts that would come in and they didn't have enough executives to read the scripts of the books. So they would hire these outside people to read and essentially write a book report and a summary comments as to whether or not the thing was any good. And here's where the English teacher and Latin teacher (laughs) and all the education came in because I had this baller education and I'd studied film and I'd studied all this other stuff. And so reading was like the easiest thing in the world. And I discovered that I could read the stuff and I could figure out ways of fixing the stuff. And then mm. I would send it back in. And as difficult as it had been being an actor, within like three months, I was offered a full-time job at a studio. And then the first thing that I recommended was this movie called I'm Gonna Get You Sucker," uh, which yes. was, which was it was during a writer's strike back in those days, in the late 80s. It was Keenan Ivory Wayne's first movie. They didn't have enough executives. So they were like, well, why don't you tag along? And
3: I loved that movie. Loved that movie. And
2: I was like, why does everybody say, like, Hollywood's so hard? This is so easy. (laughs) I stopped acting. Seconds later, the studio shut down. I lost my job. (laughs) I had nothing for a year. But I was really lucky because I had this sort of like dark moment of the soul where I was sort of like, I worked to be an actor for all these years, but I always sort of thought that whatever I did, I think would be really hard and really painful and should be really hard and painful. Mm-hmm. And I felt really weird that I found this thing that was like, I just really enjoyed and was interesting and engaging. And the whole idea that I could help people articulate what they want to do, or what they wanted to see was really fun because it. The focus didn't have to be on me, but you could actually, you could, this piece of you would be part of what you ended up seeing Mm. in a weird way. Yeah,
4: exactly. And on that point, again, uh, your Marie Claire speech, I'm just fact checking it for you now. (laughs) You'll be pleased to hear. You you say in it that everything you touched bombed when it came to movies, the movies that you made. Terrible. But that's so not true. I mean, look, 200 cigarettes. Let's look at that. Was a bomb. It wasn't. It was. Really? It was a bomb. It was. But it was okay, a total but, freaking bomb. But it was before its time. It's really interesting because the movies that you made have stood the test of time. Looking back, you're like, that. that's a damn good movie. And all of those breakout performances the comedy, the drama, the mix, the music it's very familiar to me uh, the way the pacing of it and also female
2: director uh, excuse me female director, female line producer, female costume designer, female production designer, female editor, female exactly like producer producer. we only had one dude and that was the DP. mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, it was all women. And I look that was back a bomb. now, I can't even believe that it was. Well, it was, you know, it's funny. It was a cult hit. It was a cult. It is now. And you know, what's funny is you can't get it um, anywhere because I think there are music rights problems with Paramount. That's partially my fault because I placed all the music, but, <laughs> but it was the first thing I ever did. And I look back on it and it, it's more like a TV series than it is like a movie.
4: It really reminds me of Shondaland.
2: What we do now. Yes, so really I, does. But I didn't realize that until I looked back and I went, okay. And I I give so much credit to Risa Brayman Garcia who was the director. She was a casting director. She got all that talent. She was amazing.
4: I mean, I've never seen Paul Rudd. I mean, Paul Rudd was
2: fantastic. He was great, despite the mutton chops he insisted on yeah. having. <laughs> and it was it was it was a total trial by fire because i'd never produced a movie before and it was streets of new york it was 35 days mm-hmm. we shot nights forever we had an incredibly oppressive and terrifying production company with a harry cone like boss at the head of it was it the boss that i think i know uh huh <laughs> yes probably probably um <laughs> and it was It was this amazing baptism by fire, but I I, I, look, I learned a lot and I really enjoyed the process. And it just, people didn't understand what it was.
3: Uh Uh-huh. Was Martha Plimpton in that?
2: Martha Plimpton, uh, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, Courtney Love. Crazy. Who, by the way, is fantastic in it. She's really good. Courtney Love. She's a
3: great actress.
2: She was really really good. And she did a really, really good job. Janine Garofalo, there's a whole story behind that. She totally bailed us out. Um, Dave Chappelle, wow. Kate Hudson, Jay Moore.
3: What a cast.
2: And it was, it was nuts. It was a nuts thing to do like your first time out. But to that point, what's weird is honestly poor Mark Gordon. Cause if I was really associated with the movie while I worked with him, it was just prior to the, the Shonda relationship. Um, and during the Shonda relationship, like that company made like day after tomorrow, which I had that much to do with. And Casanova, which I think is a terrific movie, oh, it's which a I great love, film. Yeah. and which I was making the same time I was flying back to Grey's season one, I was commuting from Venice Italy to California. Nice. Wow. How's wow. that for glamorous? I was a <laughs> blithering freaking idiot by the for time sure. I would get off plane. <laughs> um, but I thought that was a beautiful movie and great, but the timing was wrong. Like, it was always the timing was wrong. And it wasn't until I got to TV that I caught up with my time. Like, I felt like the timing was right. In a strange way, there was also this really weird. I'm talking a lot, but you know, I think that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Yeah, Yeah, no, this is fascinating. What we want. So we had this moment. I was I was commuting back and forth from uh, California to Venice, and I remember sitting in Piazza San Marco, and the sun was rising, and we were waiting for the right light. And I was sitting there, and my foot was twitching in my chair, and I was reading through the next. Grey's Anatomy script that Sean did something. I think we're in like episode two or three or Mm -hmm. something that's like that. And I'm reading it and I'm looking around and I say to somebody, I I don't understand why this is taking so long. (laughs) And jokingly, I turn, I think, to like Jeremy Irons. And I said, (laughs) you know, it's so funny is if I were back home right now, we would have already done 20 setups. (laughs) And he looked at me and he went, oh, darling. Oh, no. <laughs> I think you probably like television. more. Oh, wow. It was something like that. It was probably yeah. wiser because it was fucking Jeremy Irons. So. That sounded like
3: Jeremy Irons. It I was feel like lovely. he was just on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> I apologize, Jeremy Irons. Um, but I remember thinking, man, you're right. And well, I still love movies and I'm still excited to make movies. And Julianne and I have had this conversation before, too. I think there's something amazing about a close-ended story but there was something at that point about the thing about series was the endless possibility of where you could go. And the fact that like life, TV is about, or screen, smaller screens are about, you know, stories about people who don't change overnight. Yeah. You know, there's, there, you don't have to have an epiphany in a long running television series. What you have is life, which is the slow growth of realizing kind of who you are. Mm
4: -hmm. And
2: I loved, I loved that aspect of it that you never knew. I always sort of felt like if you read something or you hear a pitch and you don't know how it's going to end, that's a great show.
3: I'm fascinated listening to this whole journey, like just the pivoting that you did. Like you, I admire so much starting out Wanting to be a performer and then just trusting and listening to your instincts about, because I know so many people who maniacally stick to their dream to the point where it almost drives them into the ground, even though when there's something else that's so much more expansive, like that their life gets so limited when they have blinders on, like, no, it has to be this. And that it's, I almost think, because I did improv, like just listening to you being willing to take the cues of the universe and trust, like, wait, this feels good. What if it's okay if it's something other than what I thought it was when I started out on this journey? And then even pivoting from movies to TV of just being very present for the ride and not not having to get ahead of your own story and what you're doing. Like it's it's inspiring to me to hear that because I think people can get very locked into things that this is the perfect moment to take another ad break. Oh, look at you, Julianne. <laughs> look
4: You're, at so you, Julianne. <laughs> You're such a proud. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> it's the perfect time. And uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about being a, a non writing executive producer. Oh, yes.
0: Lady. Discover Bet MGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for non stop action all winter long.
4: and we're back so betsy i'm intrigued 200 cigarettes there's a lot of shonda in that movie and there's a lot of shonda land output in that movie in terms of pacing in terms of fun in terms of drive so it makes me think that as the land how does that how does that work how does that work question
2: well, first of all, this what I'm going to say about being the land is I think in the olden days I was the land. Nowadays, just so people understand, Shondaland is bigger than my land. Like Shondaland uh-huh. is now podcasts. It is now um, a a website. It is products, and it is so. It's I'm a I'm now a small piece, or or I'm I'm a section of the land, but it's a land that you built. You know, it's it, it definitely is. You know, it's funny. You know, I you'd have to ask Shonda, do you think that you're, you know, there's a lot of Shonda or, you know, Shonda's sort of style in 200 Cigarettes? Because I think, I, th- I think, it, certainly in terms of pacing, in terms of comedy, in terms of, because this is the funny thing about Shonda too, is everybody who thinks about Shonda is this like drama writer and Shonda wrote comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, she did introducing Dor- Dorothy Dandridge, but she also did, you know, Princess Diaries. And she, the specs that I read, which were the funniest things that I'd read, like initially when I first met her. So yeah, there is a, there is a sort of, if I think about probably what she was doing, and she's definitely, you know, more than 10 years younger than I am. So she was at a different stage when I was making that movie, certainly. But when you sort of think about, we talked about that sort of trajectory of having a lot of light stuff in your background. And also, Mm -hmm. I think it also for me is as a woman, I mean, you know, this Julian is as a woman, people are way more comfortable with you doing things that are funny, Mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily threatening. And I think, especially at that point, there was, it was certainly, it's certainly easier and I can't speak for her, but for me, because I'd always use comedy as a way in the door and also because I laugh a lot and I think a lot of stuff is funny. It felt like a natural thing to be able to, to do. I think there is something about sense of humor, but also the extremity of the emotional situation mm-hmm. <clears throat> because there was something about the whole idea of how horrible we all feel on New Year's Eve. And I I think that there is a large portion of that that incredibly tortured internal part of all of us mm-hmm. which is i don't have a party to go to i don't have a date but that it's as big as a nuclear holocaust event <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and there is there is a certain amount of that humor i think that does continue at least through the stuff that i continue to like mm-hmm. you know which is perspective is in the eye of the beholder mhm but watching people deal with crises in a different way and what one person calls a crisis, another person calls a crisis is always is often entertaining.
4: Yes. <laughs> we have I basically in the last 20 minutes or so, we've, we've just got some questions and some advice because a lot of this show is about self-help and I need a lot of self-help all the time. And you know. so, so one of the joys is being able to talk to somebody like you and
3: get some We've of that We've selfishly self-help. created this so we can yeah. ask people who are, who are on it tips. Oh, God, I want
2: to host this thing too then.
4: Jesus. <laughs> it's so good. It's it's so good. It's been pretty good, I have anyway, Joan Jett had some great self-help. Joan Jett's <laughs> the best. So I know you had a question on, do you want to ask your question about um, Gray's about pitching that in the room?
3: I, I mean, I... I I still in, you know, in 2021 or in 2020, did the likability factor, like the the, the lady, the likable ladies, you know, it was my writing partner and I had a script that was getting funding for a movie that was a woman. It was a dark comedy about a woman who was in an unhappy marriage and has an affair and bad things happen and there was a male investor we have a sex scene where she's having sex with her husband and is bored and is watching television and he was so upset by that and it's like you know they have kids they you know how bad like he wanted an enthusiastic he wanted her to be a better wife like the whole thing is and it's like my parents had kids and I never saw them even shake hands like <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's <laughs> no, a no a,
2: no touching. There was no touching.
3: No, so no play. I mean, I never even saw them in the same room. Would you mind telling our listeners, the, like, the, the you guys got so much pushback pitching Greys. And I was so wowed by that when you were in the room and one of the gentlemen was judging <laughs> Meredith Gray and the fact that you had enough wherewithal to have your own back. And, and this gentleman was saying, if you wouldn't mind, I, this story oh, yeah. knocked my socks off.
2: No, um, and what's funny is it, it, it harkens back to our earlier conversation, which is their advantages to having the actor and the Latin teacher. Because <laughs> the Latin teacher is very impatient. Yes. And the actor enjoys the room, right? Or tries to enjoy it or wants to enjoy it. So yeah, so basically we had, um, we shot the pilot, I think. And just for people who don't know, the thing about Grey's Anatomy was every single step of the way, we almost didn't make it. So Shonda did this incredible pitch. We developed the show. She did this incredible pitch. They bought the pitch in the room, terrific. She wrote the pilot. The pilot was what you saw. I mean, we found an old version of the pilot recently there were certain things that were slightly different, but honestly, it was pretty much what you saw.:
3: I watched it again last night. It holds it's so great. it holds up, and it was one of having a complicated female like, thank you for creating this world.
2: Once again, it was like it never occurred to us that because this all sort of came out of partially too, this idea that neither of us saw anything on television that looked like us, that sounded like us, that acted like us. were're flawed, screwy, dark, competitive. And there's no reason why you can't be friends or work in an environment. And I was always friends with the people that I worked with. And it didn't mean that we weren't competing for projects, but I had my people's back and they had my, and it was like, you had, that's what you did. And she had a similar sort of experience in her world. And so it was a bit of an anomaly to begin with. And then basically we were the last pilot to get picked up to shoot. We... We're told that they weren't really sure. They didn't understand the tone of the show. So God bless this woman, Susan Lyon, who was head of ABC at that time. She was a co-president, I think, with Lloyd Braun. And I remember Shonda and I went in and I we were like, okay, we're just going to sell them. So I found this article in the New York Times that had nothing to do with our show, but it was all about like women in the workplace and conflict. And, and she we brought this whole sort of like this is why this is relevant. And it's an important time for people to see women as doctors. <laughs> and, and what's the conflict of leaving home? I mean, it was all freaking smoke and mirrors. And she was like, All right, last pilot to get picked up to shoot. In pilot terms, and Julianne can understand this for all you listeners because she's genius at this too. When you're the last person picked up, you're the last pilot picked up. Let's just say no one's available. There's, <laughs> there's, it is, it is really like, picking through vegetables at the farmer's market at about two o'clock in the afternoon. But we got really lucky. We had this casting director, Linda Lowe, who was willing to do it, who had never really done television before. But she was like, I don't know, this is really kind of interesting. Yeah, this is fun. And they're these two women and this is fun. And we had Peter Horton, who was a friend of Mark Gordon's, whose company it was. And was really, really wanted to do a pilot and loved the pilot and was a passionate supporter of, and was the person I think who introduced us to Julianne, um, who we were able to get as a director, but was definitely an underdog because he wasn't one of three people that everybody always hires to do pilots. Mm -hmm. And casting, we were really lucky because Ellen Pompeo had tested for another show at ABC. And this genius executive who actually introduced Sean and me originally, Suzanne Patmore Gibbs, who unfortunately uh, so passed sad. away um, a few years ago. She saw this audition and she said, you know, you really, she was at the t- studio at the time. She said, You really should look at her for Meredith. She was great. Patrick Dempsey was oh. terrific. That was a that was a whole process, though. It was like the whole thing, the whole thing was a process. We started filming, and one of the first notes we got was. To, they, they shot and I'm making a face right now. Like I just smelled poop. To <laughs> who doesn't know what I'm doing with my face. And we got to this like first day of shooting and we shot the lock one of the locker room seats where they're all meeting for the first time. And Sandra O's by the locker room and Katie Eigle comes in blah, blah, blah. And the note was the executive was on, st- on set and he was like, ah, the hair. And we said what they said. They had some it's messy. Oh my gosh. It's natural. And we were like, well, they're first day doctors. <laughs> they're doctors. They're doctors. He was like, no, no, no. So we had to comb their hair and neaten it up. And they left. And I was like, mess their hair up again. Just, <laughs> like mess their hair up again. This is ridiculous. And it was sort of like that each step of the way, we finally got picked up, last show to get picked up, had to pitch the whole thing all over again, sort of. And at the meeting that you're talking to, long-winded way of getting to it, the meeting that you're describing, we walked in and I can't remember exactly which point of the food chain it was, but we were sitting in a room and it was all men and the two of us. And this one executive mm. took it upon himself to say, to your point, every woman's gotta be likable in the world, apparently. Apparently you only wanna watch women if they're likable, or by the way, side note, if they have a disability, which makes them sympathetic and explains why they're being, oh, I don't know, crusty or slightly impatient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in this particular case, he said, I don't know. I just, I find this kind of repulsive. I mean, you have a lead character, a woman that I'm supposed to like, who the night before her first day at work, working at this hospital, goes out, gets drunk and gets laid and has a one night stand. I mean, who would do that? And I remember without skipping a beat because it's true, I said, me, mm. I did it. Yes, And I said, I went out the night before my last job, got wasted, like fucked all night and <laughs> came back to work. Like I went to work first day, hung over like an animal. And <laughs> let me just say, probably was still drunk. <laughs> so, and I remember... It was some version of that, probably simpler and more elegant. But uh, <laughs> I remember Sean, Sean always says, like, that moment you went, and you, you are a keeper. Like, yes. we, this is, this makes total sense because no one could say anything because they couldn't look at me and go, like, you're a slut whore right. <laughs> to my right. face. But they were confronted with somebody who's saying, so, see, that was me. And you've been treating me like a normal executive, but that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's and and you know all the way along, I always say that and I think I said this in the speech, which is, you're not a threat until you're somewhat successful, right. and then once all of a sudden you gain a certain amount of success and agency, that's when the knives come out.
4: What do you mean by that? I'm really interested in that, Betsy. Which part? Oh, the knives coming out. What do you? Mean? It's
2: it's the it's the fact that I think when when you don't have any power for women, you know, you don't have as hard. It, it's like navigating the world is not necessarily as hard because nobody takes you that seriously. But as soon as you actually have a certain amount of power or agency or sway, that's when a lot of conflict gets thrown in your face. And how do you navigate that?
4: This is the self help part.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think. I think it's not until you're challenged over things that you know you shouldn't be challenged over that you, you you start to develop the wherewithal and the confidence to say, no, this is what I need and this is what, more importantly, I want. Very often, it's up to us to forge that path and be able to identify the moment where it happens. But I think very often when you talk to other women who have gotten to a particular place where... Nobody took them as seriously as they could, might have. And there's always an aha moment for us. It was a moment where we walked into a meeting and we realized that there had been a pre-meeting before we got there. Mm. And they're all gonna try to convince us to do something. And that was my aha. That was my, oh no, you don't. And let's just say it didn't go well after that because that's when the mean Latin teacher comes out. Mm -hmm. And I encourage anybody who's listening is if you honestly feel like you're not getting your due, you will. Because you'll find the moment where you can and the moment where you have the opportunity. And they come in different ways and shapes and sizes. But the more you respect yourself and your output, the less you will have tolerance for the people who are trying to make your movement towards fully realizing what you can do and the work that you want to do but the, the, the more it's up to you to challenge that, if that makes sense.
3: Would you get nervous along the way when you would speak up? or w- Would you have to you have your allies? I have, I, I have
2: this thing, which is, um, yes, sometimes, but I have to say it's the improv thing, which is I think I read a room or I think about a lot and I listen to what people are saying. And then a lot of the way I operate or I try to focus is I, I try to, I try to figure out how I can make the most effective message, like how I can sell my point. And I'm going to quote a story from a long time ago. Uh, There's, there was a bodyguard who was describing his job. He, he was a bodyguard for a singer. And my friend asked him, how do you do your job? Like, how do you bodyguard this famous person? And he said, it's very simple. First, you are nice. And then you are not nice. Wow. And in my brain, I'm always sort of like, first, for me, first, I will always give people the benefit of the doubt. I will listen. And then the impatience comes out in me and I can't control the impatience. So what happens is when the impatience comes out, then there's a larger force at work, which means in terms of thinking about it, I'll think about it up to a point. And then my mouth bursts open and I say, oh, that was me. You know, I got drunk and had a one night stand and showed up at work the next day hung over. <laughs> that wasn't me thinking about it. That was me literally saying, oh, no, you don't. No, you, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because I know I have right on my side here.
3: I admire that so much. I, that's yeah, well, I wish I
2: wish I could do it all the time.
3: <laughs> I love it. I loved it.
2: But I
4: have a
3: know. question about producing.
4: What are the building blocks that you use just in your head, just the go-to building blocks when you're thinking about putting together one of these, you know, obviously mega hits after mega hits? What are the basic principles that you go to?
2: I gotta tell you, I think it it always starts with something really simple, which is do I want to watch this? Mm-hmm. It's really simple. It's just does this idea really intrigue me? Do I know how this is gonna end or what the correct storytelling methodology is? I can't figure it out. Is it something I've ever really seen before just like this? Is it something I've done before? Is it something we've done before? And you know, is it something just emotionally on some level I relate to? And is there somewhere in it an unresolvable conflict?
4: I was just actually thinking as well about the physical production side of it. So, for example, with Bridgerton, you were very clear. Costumes, (laughs) costumes, costumes, costumes. And I just wondered if you have a different instinct for each uh, show or is it is it is it is it is an instinctive thing or is it a set of building blocks that you just have as a go to instinctively because of your background as a movie producer, just where that comes from. I'm fascinated. I think
2: I think you know what it is is it's it's what is the dominant what is the dominant thing that I'm trying to convey or we're trying to convey in each show, right? So with Bridgerton, and we did it in a couple of different ways. It was costumes for me and music for me in some ways too. The music. Chris Bowers, by the way, amazing, amazing composer.
3: Obsessed with that.
2: But and and Shonda was you know, super obviously involved and instrumental in all this as well as two, as well as Chris and Ben Duzen and Julianne, who like, you know, hello, directed the first episode and personally my favorite episode, episode six.
4: Oh, which my kids have never forgiven me for, by the sexy way. Six.
2: Thank you. Sexy six, sexy <laughs> six. But also the emotional complexity then, that was such a difficult episode in terms of calibrating it. But the, the, the topic sentence for us, I think, or at least for me going in was, Okay, how do you actually make this people be able to relate to what this is really about in a way which doesn't take them out of the period, but makes things just relatable enough that they feel like they're going to make the connection? And the thing about costumes is, we didn't do a literal. We we decided very early on it wasn't going to be a literal interpretation of Regency England. It was going to be. Much like the whole world was, and much like the whole idea was, which is it's a reimagination of Regency England, but it's close enough that you don't go, oh, this is taking me out of it because they're wearing, you know, Fendi and holding handbags. It's there, you have to look carefully, and everything's just a little bit larger than life. Everything's just more joyous and slightly, and in the case of the costumes, the hair and the makeup is all slightly larger than life and bigger, and the colors were brighter. And with the music, it was the idea of what if you had, what if you actually played songs people would recognize, but they wouldn't know they would recognize it. So very, very early on, I remembered that there was this group that I used to really love called Rodriguez and Gabriela. And they were these musicians who were Mexican who used to perform. They They couldn't get any work. And they would go to resorts in Mexico and they would play music that was the stuff they loved. Like... They were hard rock people, but they loved, you know, Stairway to Heaven and they loved
1: mm-hmm.
2: all these different stuff. And so they would play it in flamenco style and nobody recognized, it, but it's what they liked. And they put out a bunch of albums and relatively early on, I remember talking to Alex Patsavis, our Genius Music people, and I think Julianne and Chris and sort of saying, you know, there's something about the idea of having music, which is sounds like it's from the period, but if you really listen to it, it's not, it's, It's a cover and it's, but that's all just, you take, it's once again, it's about articulation. It's, you take whatever the creator or the overarching theme or base of the, the work is, and then you try to figure out all these different ways to reinforce and articulate what that is so that no matter where you turn, there's a consistency of what you're trying to say.
4: Something that I'm really interested in, I, I heard this program about Polly Platt um, on, um, you must oh, remember this, you do must you hear that? This. Oh my God,
2: I'm a huge Polly Platt fan anyway. Yeah.
4: yeah. And her daughter said that she felt that Polly Platt started getting marginalized when she got older in Hollywood. <laughs> and I w- I'm i just fascinated by that. And I wonder what your reaction is to that because it's, it's definitely something, you know, when I came over, I was this, cute younger than i actually was looking human and i i i'm just fascinated by this particular question about hollywood whether it actually is still that way or whether it's changed
2: you know it's so weird is i don't i have a hard time answering it because i've been in the same place for so long and mm-hmm. i've been working you know with the same person who i adore for so long and for whom my age, I think has always been, it's, my age has been utilized for, for good in that Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff and I am appreciated and supported for that information that I have, you know, having said that though, look, I can't deny that. I think probably I'm very fortunate because I'm in a position where I am valued for that experience. I doubt that that is the case most places. And I went through something a few years ago where I remember I would never tell anybody how old I was for years. Because I, like you said, Julianne, like I, I looked younger than I was mm-hmm. at that particular point. And I really struggled with it. And it wasn't until I read an article that mentioned my age in, I think it was like TV Guide. And they were off, they had me younger by like seven or eight years. And I thought, this is screwed up. Mm-hmm. Like there's something wrong about this. Like they had to figure it out by going like doing bad math. And clearly whoever wrote the article was not very good at math because it's pretty easy to figure out if you really want to do a deep dive. <laughs> but it was, it was both flattering, but it was, it struck me as a problem because I thought, here I am somebody who has been successfully making a living and doing what I love and been successful at what I do. And I'm hiding. If I'm hiding, what is that saying to women? And what is that mm. saying to people, to men? I mean, if I don't have the opportunity to be able to say, okay, guys, I'm in my mid to late fifties. And I can't, when I read, I wrote this article for Pollard Reporter, I think, or something, but it was like, I think I was late fifties probably. And I remember writing this up and saying, "Look." We all need to, the more people come out and say that this is what age does to me and I don't want to be actually, I don't, my value and part of my value is my age. Mm
4: -hmm. And I love this. Yeah. I think
2: it's like, don't you feel this way? It's like all your experience Mm -hmm. and all the things that you've done and the the things that, and I do feel like it's something which is, it needs to be talked about more so people understand the value of it. That's
4: why I'm trying. I totally agree with that.
2: And like you, you do, you look like you're 14, so it must be hard.
3: I know. But how is it being a 14-year-old director, Julian? Uh, isn't it have done so you know, much in such a short great. amount of time? 10,000 hours and only <laughs> 12,000
4: hours of life. Um, I'm going to go <laughs> on to the last question because I don't want to keep you any longer. But this question is absolutely essential to the success of this podcast. <laughs> um, and it's a question that we've asked everyone. It is, what would you, Betsy Beers, say now? to the young you in in that home in Long Island, maybe before you went to boarding school, what advice would you give that
2: person? Which, um, which age, young Betsy, are we talking about?
3: You can make your choice. You could say 10, you could say 17, 22, whatever, whatever age speaks to you, Younger, younger Betsy.
2: You know, I would probably give the advice to myself that I give when people ask me for advice, which is a couple of things. I would say, you don't have to pretend to know what you're doing when you really don't know what you're doing. Just admit you don't know what you're doing. And and it's okay. People won't hate you or judge you. They'll be happy because people like to share what they know and help other people learn things. But I also, I do think that, at various points in my life i've been i always struggle with am i good enough am i smart enough am i did i make the wrong decision you know i think for me there's a lot of i always want to make sure i don't want to regret things and that that at crossroads or when you you know it's the red shoes the blue shoes you know i got the blue shoes and did i really want the red shoes should i have gotten the red shoes i think the the second guessing of myself probably at points i think i would go back and probably say there is no wrong decision just try to remember there's no wrong decision because every single one of those decisions i made the red shoes the blue shoes you know the ice cream that i ate the years as a waiter the crappy experiences on stage the sh- really terrible dinner theater <laughs> the you know weird jobs and the the periods where it was way harder doing what i was doing all of it has been useful and the great thing is experience every single one of those experiences will be useful and you will find will help you at some point navigate your future so if you always think when this is your past this will help navigate your future so don't regret the you know the the road not taken because you took a different one and it'll it, it will have as much value to you later on as anything you thought you should have done
3: i think that's beautiful it's been such a joy speaking with you i see, see somebody who's been fully seemingly fully present in their life and sort of on this wonderful adventure and just somebody who's just see appears to be on a daily basis showing up 100% and just taking life on life's terms but like charting the seas and it's and i thank you you know what as a woman in the on earth as a woman in hollywood just thank you and shonda and everything just for your for your um for your changing the landscape of what it can look like for for female leads for real people all of it for showing that women can be all of it i'd also like to say that
2: thank you very much for the kind words thank you for the opportunity to blather like a maniac for right, close to right? an hour and a half
4: that's what i've the conversation i've wanted to have for 15 years it's great <laughs> it's
2: we, really we had so much time in between shots too <laughs> um but also i want to thank you because you are actually creating a platform for women to discuss their experiences to share the kinds of journeys they've taken to do the work that they do. And there are not very many platforms like this out there. So the fact that you have created this, you know, Julian and Arden, as a place for people to speak bluntly and joyfully and and hilariously about, and profoundly in some cases, about the the, the, the paths that they've taken, is a real delight. So I'm honored that you asked me and I really, really appreciate the time.
4: Thank you so much. It's about being vulnerable, isn't it? It's about being kind of brave enough to be a bit vulnerable. That's yeah. Something I find hard. Oh, everybody um. does. But
2: you've made it very easy.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Betsy.
3: Uh huge. Thank you, Betsy. You. Betsy. Really Bears. nice to meet Jordan. Nice to meet you, Betsy. Thank you so much. Have Take a great care. day. Bye. 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 <laughs> Oh my goodness, for our listeners, how cool was Betsy? Julianne, thank you for bringing us, like, bringing us Betsy, bringing her into our universe. That was amazing. Thank you to our listeners. You can email us at ladyroadpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, where can people find you on Instagram, Miss Julianne?
4: At Julianne Robinson Director.
3: I think that's right. It's you've been nailing it lately. I have to say, I'm at Arda Marine M Y R I N. My book Little Miss Little Compton is about as out worldwide, and um, we will be back next time. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Bye.